And we'll go today back to the book of Luke, chapter 22. And this is our second series that we're doing in the book of Luke. And I'm very excited about it. It's heart-wrenching, but it's also glorious. And even the hard stuff um, is things that are to our tremendous blessing and joy because they are things that our Savior has done for us, even though they're terrible in terms of the things that he had to suffer. So what we're going to do between now and the rest of April is look at the trial and triumph of Jesus. That is the title of this sermon series. And we're going to just walk through what he experienced in his suffering from basically Friday um, through Sunday. And then, and then we'll look at his resurrection and triumph uh, as we approach Easter. And so this, we'll look at these events. Today we're going to look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 38. And this is basically a text about a meal. And it's about the Passover meal. And, and it's, it's not just though them eating together. It's where Jesus teaches us something very profound about what is going to happen shortly thereafter about his suffering. So that's what we're going to see in this text. But let's listen carefully to God's holy and inspired word. Luke chapter 22 Verses 1 through 38. Now the festival unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A disputer also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. 
Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father confirmed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and it's also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This is God's holy inspired word. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we praise you, O Lord, that you are, though you are infinitely great, far above heaven and earth, you've made all things, and you know them from beginning to end, yet you are pleased to speak to us and to tell us the truth about the universe, about the world, about us, about the way to everlasting life. And so, Lord, open up our hearts to receive it, even as you have created us, created us, and have created a new spirit within us, empower us to be able to hear and listen to what you would teach us today. Oh, Lord, we need your help, we need your guidance, and we need your power to live according to what you have called us to do. Help us, O oh Lord, to see the glory of the Passover and what, how it was accomplished and fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ and to value all the more the meal he has left for us, the Lord's Supper, so that we might rejoice in the fact that he has conferred on us a kingdom, that he is going to preserve us and provide for us and that we can have complete confidence and trust in you. So, Lord, fill us with all hope and joy as we trust in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So last July 4th, um, I decided I was going to try and work. I was going to, it was not only Sunday, so, but one day on which I work, uh, but I was also going to drive Uber that night. And I was going to go out and give people rides after they've been doing whatever they do on July 4th and bring them home and so on. And, uh, and so one of, the, one of the things that struck me is I got to see the city. I ended up, my first ride took me to Knoxville, so I just stayed there. And I drove all over Knoxville. And what was amazing is just how many people were celebrating. There was just so much going on that day. And also the fact that even though fireworks are completely illegal in Knox County, everybody was shooting off fireworks. Nobody was paying attention to that law. Everybody was having a good time. Everybody was celebrating. Now, why do I bring that up? Because what you should see when you think about the Passover, which is the big theme of the text we're talking about, is that if you want to understand what it meant to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, It was a sort of July 4th. It was a day of national liberation. 
It was the day of their independence. It was the day when they celebrated that God had brought them out of Egypt by his great power, by his mighty arm, and had made them a nation. Now, when I was driving on Uber on July 4th, everybody was happy. Everybody, almost everybody I took in the car was having a great time, was having fun, except one guy. And this guy was very unhappy. He had felt like he had been betrayed by his family. And for the 15-minute drive to his home, he told me about it over and over and over again in the strongest and coarsest type of language that you can imagine. Now, this man was certainly no Jesus. And he wasn't celebrating the Passover. But it did remind me of the fact that when someone is betrayed by those close to them, it really, really hurts. And it's interesting that this great national celebration begins with a story of betrayal. It is, begins with a story of betrayal. And, you know, we know that Jesus even knew about the betrayal. But we need to understand that it also hurt him. We'll talk about it here in a second. Now, the striking thing for Israel this time is that they would go to, eat, or go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This is where everybody came. Not just from the people who lived in Israel, but people who had been scattered all over. They came to celebrate. So it was a huge celebration. There's people having a great time everywhere. Except for the fact that while they were celebrating their national independence, they, everywhere they would go in Jerusalem, they would see the fact that they were no longer an independent nation. Because they would see the Roman soldiers. They would hear from the Roman governor. And they would realize, we once were free, but we are no longer free. We are now under the bondage of Rome. And so, as you can imagine, the ideas of independence coming to celebrate together could be a rather volatile situation. And you can bet that the government of Rome didn't really like them celebrating this Independence Day. The idea that God would come and smash the tyrant, throw them out, and free the people. They didn't like that. But you know, they weren't the only ones who were afraid that day. Even the leaders of the people, the, the Jewish people, were the Jewish leaders were also afraid. Because they had one thing on their mind. Jesus. And not in a good way. They wanted to arrest him. And they wanted to be done with him. But they didn't do it. Even though Jesus was often seen among the people, as he's going to say later, they didn't do it because they were afraid of the people. So what they wanted to do was to find a way to arrest Jesus when nobody was around. Now in the midst of this, Judas had become discontent with Jesus. We don't know all the reasons why. Maybe he was thinking that Jesus was not going to be the one who would liberate them from Rome. Maybe he was looking for earthly wealth and said he, he would actually been taking money for himself out of the treasury that the <coughs> apostles had. We don't know. But certainly there is some things already wrong 
in Judas. And it says that Satan entered Judas. But I don't think Satan was just inventing something that Judas didn't have in his heart. He's taking these things, this bitterness that was there, and he's bringing it even further. And that's one reason, not to say that um, those who truly belong to Jesus can have Satan enter them in the way that Judas did. But that's one reason we've got to be especially on guard with the things in our heart. Because we don't want to give Satan a foothold, as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere. So Judas decided to betray Jesus. And I want to note, he, went, he goes to them and he says, I will give you Jesus and I will show you a way to get him without the crowds. And they agree to give him money. Now, I want you to, to see something about Judas. Judas, even though he was the one who was the betrayer, when Jesus said, someone's going to betray me, they didn't immediately say, it's Judas. They had said, who could it be? Recognize they didn't see it that it was obvious that it was Judas. He fit in. And remember, Jesus had been with him, Judas, for the past three years, day and night, eating together, sleeping in the same place together, talking together, walking together, traveling together, doing ministry together. And this is the one who betrayed him. So you have to see that this is something that must have hurt Jesus a great deal. It's a big part of his suffering. It's to be betrayed by someone who is very close to him. That would hurt him deeply. But yet we should also remember that Jesus also washed Judas' feet. And that needs to affect how we see this. Now, after speaking of the betrayal, Luke brings our attention to an important part of the Passover that may even have been forgotten or not emphasized as much. Look at verse 7. It's a very powerful verse, very evocative. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This was the day that had come in which the Passover lamb was going to be sacrificed. This, of course, refers to the, the lamb in the, in the ritual, but obviously it's pointing to the one that that lamb was pointing to, Christ, who is our Passover lamb, who has now been sacrificed for us. And what Jesus is going to do is to help them to see that this is what the supper is all about, and it points to him. That's what the Passover was all about. Now, one interesting thing about the Passover lamb that is, I think is important to see is that the Passover lamb speaks about sin. Because the Passover lamb was originally instituted because of the 10th plague. Remember, God had sent a series of punishments or plagues on Egypt because they refused to let Israel leave. And eventually, he said, I'm going to kill the firstborn of the land. But he did not just say he would kill the firstborn of Egypt. He said that this judgment will come upon everyone who does not have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. And when the angel of death comes, when he sees that blood, he will pass over that house and so that the firstborn would not die. And so the Passover lamb reminded them that they had been saved by the blood of the lamb. That was the message. 
But that's not always an easy message. Think about it. What it was saying was that Egypt and Israel were both under sin and the judgment of God and needed redemption. Both Egypt and Israel. Now, you look back in the history of the world, there's sometimes the conflicts of the nations. It's hard to know who's in the right, who's in the wrong. But in this case, it wasn't. Egypt had just taken Israel, enslaved them, killed their first their male sons. They were obviously in the wrong. So Israel had a legitimate grievance against them. But the Lord said, you both are under the wrath of God apart from the blood of the Lamb. And that's a hard message anytime that there's someone that we're experiencing a clear injustice to recognize that we're both under sin. Even when in that particular instance, there's one party that's right and one party that's wrong. In the invasion of Ukraine, it's clear and obvious to everybody that Russia is in the wrong and Ukraine is the innocent victim here. Like, that's clear. That is clear. But in the to- moving outside that in terms of the standing before God, both Ukrainians and Russians and Americans and Chinese and everybody else have sinned against God and are under his wrath apart from the blood of the Lamb. And even as we have to fight sometimes and we have to support a nation in their battle and be a part of it legitimately, righteously, we should always maintain that perspective that there's also another sense in which Russians and Americans and Ukrainians all have to stand together before the throne of God and all those, Ukrainian, Russian, American, who believe in Jesus, will be saved by the blood of the Lamb. That's what it communicates. And Jesus had the same thing because, again, for them, they had a clear, someone clearly in the wrong. It was Rome. Rome had just come in, just like Russia did to Ukraine, taken over their nation, and now ruled them, and did whatever they wanted. And so they saw, um, they saw Rome as being in the wrong. But Jesus wanted to teach them that night, that both need to be saved by the blood of the Lamb. And so he goes to celebrate the Passover. He was eager to celebrate it. And if you look here, what he's, notice that he had to kind of do this somewhat secretly. Again, he's, he's trying to avoid a situation where he's, he's taken over until it's the right time, take, arrested until the right time. So there's a series of signs. I don't think we need to read too much into it. Other than that, he had a prearranged place where he was going to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And so he comes, and he gives, in essence, his kind of last words before his death. One thing at a, attending many funerals and participating in them is that it's always something that's very powerful to hear what were the last things that the person said before they died. And not usually at the funeral, not everybody is there, and not everybody is there at the point of death. And so someone was there, and they're able to share that, and it's a very powerful thing. That's sort of what we have right here. Jesus giving his last words to the disciples before his death. And what he does is he takes the bread that is part of this meal, and he takes one of the cups that is part of this meal, and he, and he uses them in order to represent himself as the Passover lamb. So we might ask, why didn't he use the Passover lamb? Why didn't he just say, celebrate it with the Passover lamb? Eat that. 
and then that will be what represents me. No, he didn't do that. He took the bread. He took the wine. Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One is it's a little bit easier to take the bread and the wine. It's very simple. Everywhere you go, you have some sort of bread. Everywhere you go, you have the fruit of the vine. It's a lot easier. And Jesus in the New Testament wants to make it as easy as possible for his rights to go throughout the world. He simplifies them. People don't have to go up to Jerusalem. There's not a great deal of things that have to be done. It's not, it's not complicated. And it's very simple. So it's transportable. And so all the nations can be gathered where they are into the kingdom of God. But secondly, also, because of the shedding of blood. Up until Christ came, the shedding of blood was part of the sacraments, we might say, of the Old Testament. Because it pointed to the blood that was going to be shed. But now that the blood has been shed, there's no more need for the shedding of blood. And so not having the sacrifice of the lamb is a way of showing that Christ's blood has been shed and it's sufficient once and for all. So he takes the bread and the cup. And then he says about the bread, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says that the bread represents his body, but not just his body, but that it is given for you. It is handed over. That he is going to be betrayed, as he said, into the hands of sinful men. He's going to be crucified. The third day he's rise again. He's doing that for you. He wants them to do this, eat this bread in the future, as a way of remembering what he has done. And then he takes the cup, which he had already passed out to them, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Indicating that his blood was going to be shed and that that would establish a new covenant with, between God and man that would be their foundation and that would be his gift to them. Now, sometimes we speak of, of, of God's grace administered in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the new covenant and the Old Covenant or New Testament and Old Testament. But we should see that, that in the bigger picture, the Old Covenant and New Covenant really refer to the, the, the covenant God made with Adam, which was obey me perfectly and you will live, sin and you will die, which is the old covenant, which we, he broke and we in him and we since then, versus the covenant of grace, which is simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have life and you will not die. That's the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. It's, it's called in our confession. And so what Jesus is saying, remember this new covenant of grace. And he uses this as a way of reminding us and teaching us. So what's the significance of using this bread and this wine? Well, I think most all of us probably have something that can teach us about this. Because probably if I went around here, somebody has something that was given to them or that was, they were able to receive as a representative of someone, a representative, uh, of someone who has passed away. Something in your home. Now, this week I was thinking of back when I was a boy, my, um, my grandfather got, there was big news around the family as we all gathering in his house. He had gotten a dog. And so everybody was really excited. And so we went to his house and that dog did not move. It just sat there. It looked like a real dog, but it never moved. Because it was a statue. And he named it, yet yeah, he named it Winston. 
And it was a big deal in our family, and everybody laughed at it. And it was just like, for some reason, this became like a big thing of our family, and he kept it for years. Well, my grandfather, thanks be to God, is 92, and he's still living and doing well. I just got a call from him two days ago and said he's praying for me and prayed a blessing on me. So, um, but he, he's, his, he's getting a little weaker and he needs a little more help. And so he moved in with my uncle in Virginia and he had to downsize from his apartment. <laughs> and so uh, my parents called me when he was doing this and they said, do you want anything that he has here? And I said, yep, I want Winston. <laughs> And so now I have, I have Winston there in my house. And I remember the first people who saw it jumped because they thought there was a dog there because it kind of looks a little bit realistic. And, uh, and it's a sort of sacrament of my, of my grandfather. It's like every time I see it, I, I remember the good memories that we have. I remember the legacy of my grandfather and grandmother. And it brings me a certain joy. Now, some people will say like the, about the Lord's Supper or baptism, you know, it's just a symbol. It's just a memorial. But here's the thing. I don't think it's just that. But I think it also to say it's just a memorial downplays what a memorial is. Because it evokes to us a lot of things that are powerful. And so when we have those things from those people we love, they mean something. It's not just a memorial. It's not like you just throw it out. It's something significant. And so it is with the Lord's Supper. It's something powerful. And it's something given us by Jesus Christ himself to remember him. And it is something the Holy Spirit uses to transform our lives. So that's something very powerful. So what an amazing moment. What, an, what a beautiful thing. that Jesus takes these things and he says, Keep eating this until I come again. Remember me. This will be precious to you. Every time you do it, you can... Have your heart moved by the fact that I was with you and I left this for you. And then what happens? Everybody starts fighting around the table. Have you ever had that experience? We're having a nice meal. And all of a sudden, there's a big fight that goes on around the table. Anybody at all know what that's like? Anybody ever experienced that? Have a nice meal with your family. And all of a sudden, it turns into a fight. And everybody's like, oh, well, how can I get to the exit, right? That's what happens at the Lord's Supper. That's what happens at the Passover, is the disciples start fighting. So one thing I want to encourage you, especially for moms and dads, if you see like, man, my kids are fighting all the time. Remember, Jesus kind of had that experience. Even Jesus had that happen. So be encouraged. They still kept moving forward, and, and things turned out all right. So, now, Jesus uses this to teach them something significant. And that is, what is the benefit of the Passover lamb? And that's the last thing we're going to look at. I'm not gonna, it's, it's not going to be as long as the last point. But I want to I draw your attention to what happens. and kind of try to hit on it briefly to show you. What is the benefit of, that come from the Passover lamb? Because in a way, Jesus himself kind of set up the occasion for this fight. Because he said, someone who's eating here is going to betray me. And then they, all of them got nervous. And they're looking around. They're saying, who is it? And then it turns into, okay, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Not you, for sure. It's, de- it's going to be me. 
I'm going to be up there. I'm going to be right, the right hand of Jesus. And then they fight about it. And so Jesus says to them, Jesus says to them, look, look at me. I'm going to teach you something. I'm going to teach you about the benefits that come from the Passover lamb. I'm going to show you what this means. He's going to do it in three ways. The first benefit is he's going to tell them that he's going to give them a kingdom. Look at what he says in verse 29, chapter 22. He says, And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me. What he tells them is, look, the world is always fighting for place. People want to be honored. People want to get get more likes on TikTok. People want to be the ones who everybody's talking about. And they want to have power. They want to have riches. They want to be the top dog. But he says, look at me, Jesus is saying. What did I just do? Now, it doesn't say it in the text, but we know from John that what he had just done is acted like a servant and washed everybody's feet. And he says, this will show you the way of greatness in the kingdom of God. The greatest service, the one who's most willing to be humbled and serve everybody is the one who will be greatest. And that began with Jesus himself because he served everybody through his death, right? But he says, but the hard thing is, how do we give up the idea that we're going to give up our place, give up our honor when people don't give us the things we deserve or even take things from us or take advantage of us or... or or um, challenge us, or say things that hurt us. How do we keep serving? Well, it's the confidence that comes from the Lord's Supper, which tells us what Jesus told his disciples. It gives us the same message. I confer on you a kingdom. I confer on you a kingdom. I'm given over for your sins, and you get instead the kingdom that my Father has given to me. So you know what? If you get some things taken away, if people don't like you as much as you think they should, if people don't give you the honor and respect that you deserve, it's all right because I'm giving you a kingdom. It's not like you're going to lose out in the end. You may have to suffer for a little while, but the end is going to be great. You are getting a kingdom, and you're going to be a ruler in it. So don't worry too much about what this world says about you. I confer on you a kingdom. That's the first benefit. Then the second benefit is that he would give them protection. He would give them protection. Because he says to them that Satan is asked to sift all of them like wheat, meaning that they're going to go through a trial. They need the message. How do they know they're going to get the kingdom? One of them is going to betray him and turn away. How do they know they're going to get the kingdom? And he even says to them, you're going to betray me, too. So how would they get the kingdom? Well, he said, I'm not only going to give you the sacrifice, I'm going to give you the prayers, the prayers of Jesus. He says, Satan has, has asked to sift all of you like wheat, but, 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 I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. He does not say, hey, but I know you're strong enough to do it. I know that you'll make it through, even though he commends the fact that they stood with him. 
But he said, here's your sure foundation. I, who made the sacrifice, will pray that that sacrifice will be applied and so that your faith will not fail. How do we know that we, who are with Jesus now, will make it to the end? I have prayed for you, Jesus says, that your faith may not fail. So he promises protection. That's what the Lord's Supper teaches us. And third, he would give them provision. He would give them a kingdom. He would give them protection. He would give them provision. Now, state in an interesting way. Because he says, remember when I sent you out, did you lack anything? No. No. Nothing. And so he could have said, well, then trust me. But he actually says, now, when I sent you out before, I said, don't worry about what you've got. You know, just relax, and I'll take care of everything. Here he says you need to do some planning. You know, take an extra pair of clothes, get a bag so you can carry some things, even get a sword, he says, for defense. So you've got to plan. But the point is that whether you're planning or whether you're not planning, that's not ultimately what's going to provide for you. What's going to provide for you? The Lord Jesus himself. He's going to take care of you. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes, a lot of times, money things can send me into a tailspin. You know, it's just like all of a sudden I thought I have enough money to pay for this, and now it's all gone, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to f- figure it out. And it, it's, it's amazing how often those things affect my spirit, especially when I've seen that Jesus has provided for me Richly and abundantly, not just like he's given me rice to eat only for my whole life. He's blessed me with riches in my house, you know. The Father's care that is guaranteed through Jesus is what needs to be our confidence. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Why can we give money today to our building fund? Money that we probably have in mind we could do with other things. We see bills coming up down the road. What will give us the confidence to say we can give something to the Lord that he's laid in our heart to do? Because we know Jesus will take care of us. And he'll take care of this church. He'll provide for us. He's provided a place for us every Sunday we've had. Everything, every weekend. One, I think one time we met on a Saturday night. But we've had places to go. He'll provide for us in the future. That's just a side note for what we're going to talk about a little later. But the point is, Jesus will take care of us and so we can have confidence. So, as we look at the Lord's Supper, let me just ask in conclusion, think about what are you basing your confidence on? What are you basing your life on? What are you basing your hope for the future on? The Lord Jesus has given us a whole different basis to rest on. There's an interesting story that I read this week that that reminded me of this. And uh, I thought brought this point home. So, Henry Nouwen is a spiritual writer of the 20th century. And, and he was widely recognized and appreciated for his books. He was, he, he was recognized by Yale, by Notre Dame, and by everybody. He was just, the, everybody thought he, he had a lot of insight. And so wherever he went, you know, people would know him. People would appreciate him. And then in 1986, he went to be pastor at a home for the intellectually disabled. And you know what? The people who were there did not care at all about the fact that he had taught at Yale, 
or Notre Dame or written a book. They didn't like him more because of it. They didn't like him less because of it. So all this stuff that he's basing his heart and life on doesn't matter. So what do you base your heart and life on? Where's your confidence then? Where does your self-worth come from? What gives you the power to go forward? And it's in times like that, you know, it's good to write books. It's good to have people appreciate them. It's good to be able to speak in places. Great. But it's not the ultimate foundation. The ultimate foundation is the assurance of the love of God that he gives us through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. That's what assures us that whatever else happens, however many books we write or don't write, how much we succeed or not, however much we can do compared to what we used to be able to do, that Jesus is conferring onto us a kingdom and that he's going to protect us and that he's going to provide for us. And we don't need to have any doubt about that. He has made the sacrifice and he's ensuring that it's going to be applied to us because he's praying for you right now. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God for them to, through him because he ever lives, ever lives to make intercession for them. Because, and what does he plead? The sacrifice. We're all saved by the blood of the lamb. And my friends, that's a foundation on which we can build our lives, upon which we can, we can have confidence, upon which we can have hope, and on which we can serve. So let's remember the blood of the Lamb. Amen.